The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. The word of God speaks to us. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is God's word to us. Thanks so much, Allie. I would say they give me the easy ones, but... David had just as much heavy lifting last week, so we got to spread it around a little bit. For those of you who don't know me, my name's JJ. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline, and uh, sometimes we come to hard texts because we put our head down and we tell you what's in the Bible, and we go verse by verse, and uh, my heart's encouraged by what we're going to see here in this passage. I hope you are as well. Pray for me. I'll pray for you guys. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. Thank you that you communicate fresh grace through it. Help us. Open our eyes, open our ears. Help us not to be afraid of the truth. Lord, we pray that you would bring conviction as needed, but not condemnation. Lord, thank you that you build us up rather than tear us down. We ask that you would be the lifter of our heads today, that you'd light up our eyes. We ask with the psalmist that we would be able to see wonderful things in your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Listen to a publisher's description of a book that just came out a couple months ago. While dispensing sage advice to the generations paying the price for these sexual excesses, the author makes a passionate case for a new sexual culture built around dignity, virtue, and restraint. Sounds like the description of a conservative Christian author's sequel to I Kiss Dating Goodbye, right? But it's the opposite, in fact. The book is titled The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. And the author, Louise Perry, is not actually a follower of Jesus. She's arguing from evolutionary biology and feminist passion an empirical observation, but she ends up echoing Paul in the process. The book description continues. The main winners from a world of rough sex and hookup culture and ubiquitous porn where anything goes and only consent matters are a tiny status of high-status men, a tiny majority of high-status men, not the women forced to accommodate the excesses of male lust. So we have a phenomenon now where thoughtful feminist writers like Louise Perry are starting to talk openly about their collective post-sexual liberation hangovers. 
as well as expressing a desire for a different kind of sexual ethic that will fill them up instead of increasingly hollowing them out. And the good news is that Paul's just finished laying the foundation for that kind of ethic just prior to our passage in chapter 6. To remind you of what he said there, starting in verse 13 of chapter 6, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other person a sin commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul's ultimate point there in chapter 6 is that it's impossible to have meaningless sex. And as we're going to see here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, the Corinthians were facing many of the same problems that we are. All the wrong people were abstaining from sex, and all the wrong people were indulging in sex. And it's not an accident that Paul's waited this long in the letter to address their sexual ethics questions here in chapter 7, because he wanted to remind them first that they've been bought with a price. I'll get to your questions, but first, you need to know you're not your own. You belong to God, body and soul. Don't forget your body belongs first to God and second to your spouse. So let's look at their question, which is really more of a challenge. Verse one, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul says, quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. Paul starts by trying to help them see the connection between marriage and mutuality. Marriage and mutuality. Apparently, there's a faction in the church at Corinth that's advocating marital abstinence. But Paul's going, hey, what honors the giver of a gift more? To thank the giver and then toss the gift unwrapped in a closet? Or to unwrap it and be reminded of the giver every time you enjoy it? So Paul says, I reject your false spirituality that says the truly spiritual don't unwrap God's gift of marital intimacy. Back in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul wrote, a man has his father's wife, and we know what he means. So when Paul says here in verse 2 that each man or woman should have their own spouse, he's artfully saying it's right and good for married men and married women to prize and pursue a rich sexual life together. He goes on in verse 3 to use the phrase conjugal rights, conjugal rights. And he uses the same phrase in Romans 13, 7 to talk about something completely different. Notice what he says. Pay to all what's owed to them. There's that word. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And so Paul's saying you actually have a meritable, intimate obligation and ought to a delightful, mutual duty. In the words of one author, Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. A delightful duty, a marital obligation of shared celebration. And when Jesus 
talked about the purpose and design of the marriage union as Paul's readers would have known, as Paul knew. Jesus took his hearers all the way back to the first marriage, the first book of the Bible, and Jesus quotes Genesis 2 in Matthew 19. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. To leave and to cleave, oneness. This is the point. God designed marital intimacy to be mutually pleasurable, but not merely pleasurable, where we just consider our own needs in the presence of others and remain alone together. Verse three, conjugal rights are actually for union and communion. Married people are supposed to earnestly pursue marital passion because married people are supposed to earnestly pursue marital union. We've all experienced how sin separates us from each other and from God, but married sex in the miraculous plan of God takes two separate sinners and reminds them over and over with great power and great pleasure that God has made them one flesh. It's appropriate, Paul's saying. It's a delightful duty of married men and women, to offer themselves to each other sexually. He goes on, verse four, for the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So now Paul is pushing back against his culture's norms of abusive power and control in the home. The perfect symmetry in our passage would have flown in the face of might makes right. In the Greco-Roman culture, a woman would have rarely enjoyed this kind of mutual power and symmetry with her husband. But now, through Jesus' cross work, the ground is finally leveled for men and women, even in the bedroom. So can you see the connection that Paul's trying to make between marriage and mutuality? Paul's trying to get him to see that married sex is made for satisfied mutuality. That's what it's for. Married sex is made for satisfied mutuality, but he's not done. He also wants them to see the connection between marriage and making war. Between marriage and making war. Notice how matter-of-fact Paul is. What I love about Paul is he's such a sexual Realist. He sees the reality of embodied life in a fallen world. He's not surprised by it. He acknowledges, verse 2, quote, the temptation to sexual immorality. He's not a prude, but neither does he think sex is meaningless. So he's inviting us to conduct ourselves with full awareness of the constant pull towards sexual sin and brokenness, and he doesn't want us to be surprised or caught off guard or seduced by our common enemy. And it's incredibly reassuring that Paul's going to circle back around later in chapter 10 of this letter and say this. Hey, don't forget, no temptation, no temptation is overtaking you that's not common to everybody. God's faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability with the temptation. He'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Good news. You're not alone. Good news, the pull towards temptation is common to all of us in this room. Nothing has tempted you that's not also tempted somebody else in this room. As we confess our sins, as we pray for each other in community, we keep re-emptying sin's pull of its power. 
We name things to tame things. And in a sense, we might call this a negative discipline. And Paul's pointing out the window at it as he drives towards his main point, his primary focus in these verses, which is calling us to a positive discipline. A positive discipline. Because he wants married men and women in the church to fight sexual sin with superior pleasure. It's what Thomas Chalmers, the Puritan, famously called the expulsive power of a new affection. God's plan for an affair-proof marriage is not just putting up fences, though that's needed, but primarily pursuing marital pleasure with single-minded focus and lifelong perseverance. Paul's point is that you fight for your marriage less by fending other people off and more by fighting to continually pursue your spouse. So he says in verse 5 to married people, hey, don't deprive each other of sex. This word deprive is used by Jesus when he's listing the Ten Commandments in Mark 10. Notice what he says. You know the commandments. Jewish folks that have memorized them since you were a child, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not notice defraud. Defraud. It's the same word translated here, deprive. Now, Paul's not saying his readers are breaking the Eighth Commandment, don't steal, but he is deliberately using it as an analogy. Hey, what you're doing might seem super spiritual to deprive your spouse, but you're actually robbing each other of a great gift from God himself, a source of pleasure and joy and union from his hand. So really what Paul's doing is here is he's advocating the virtue of what we might call marital availability. He wants us to be working all the time to cultivate a personal warmth and hospitality towards our spouse for those of us who are married. God's design is that instead of experiencing each other like a cold house with curtains drawn and doors locked, you should both be experiencing each other as a house that has a fire in the hearth with the curtains open and a key left under the mat. Marital availability. He pauses to offer a caveat in verse 5, quote, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then make sure and come together again. As a general rule, Paul says, don't be in the habit of depriving each other. He wants us to have a single-minded focus to cultivate lifelong marital passion knowing that we'll be out of step with a culture obsessed with serial commitment-free hookups and staying young. Coco Chanel famously said, nothing makes someone look so old as desperately trying to look young. Paul flies in the face of that kind of cultural obsession. And what pressure women in particular in our day and age are put under to not look their age. How ridiculous How cruel and inhuman we can be to each other as we age. But scripture describes for us a vibrant physical relationship that's lifelong, that's anchored in love and respect and mutual honor between two people who've decided to put in work every day to build each other up instead of tear each other down. Now imagine what this might be like if you buy in to what Paul is presenting to you. What a safe harbor you could become for your spouse. What a source of sanity and stability. One place 
where they don't have to hide their wrinkles and their flaws. One place where they can disrobe emotionally and physically and not regret it later. One place where physical love doesn't have to feel like some kind of constant audition where they live in terror of gaining one pound too many or developing one wrinkle too many. Their body freely given to you, your body freely given to them. Safety, security, seen and known with all your flaws, still accepted and loved. It's a picture of how God relates to us through Jesus. We get to offer that to each other in marriage. We get to go into the bedroom and close the door and preach the gospel to each other. Notice the mutuality Paul commands, even in the way we're to hit pause on marital intimacy. Paul says, verse 5, it should only come about by agreement, notice, by agreement for a limited time. And I think Paul's counsel points to a broader marriage principle around the bedroom. There's all sorts of seasons of life, all sorts of unexpected events that are going to converge and conspire to keep couples from joining together. That's life. But no long-term harm needs to come from those normal obstacles and disappointments. Oftentimes, they can bond us together and we can laugh about it. However, I've seen deep harm come from a lack of, verse 5, agreement. Deep harm can come when one person in a marriage silently makes intimacy decisions for both people. Hey, I get it. Maybe you're ashamed. Maybe you're concealing hidden sin. Maybe you have a medical problem. You might need to talk to a pastor. You might need to talk to a doctor about your barriers to intimacy that you're coming up against, but you must not shut out your spouse, Paul says. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to refuse to talk about it. And furthermore, if you've been stonewalling your spouse for some time, it's also not okay to punish them for finally reaching out to someone else for help out of desperation. All sorts of intimacy challenges can be overcome in marriage in such a way as to actually forge a deeper marriage bond, but only if both people share all the information and make decisions together. But silence opens a thousand wounds because we imagine the worst, and into that silence we insert the worst, and it can quickly start to feel like we're standing on opposite rims of the Grand Canyon, but the damage is rarely permanent. That's the good news. We can stop and turn around and go the other way. We can start to bind up those wounds. We can start to bring healing with just a few honest and vulnerable words, words that move towards your spouse, words that invite your spouse to move towards you, words that acknowledge weakness, words that say help. You don't need to beat yourself up. Jesus already took your beating. What I want you to do is hear me really clearly. If you've been withdrawing from your spouse, I don't say shame on you, but grace on you, grace to you. Let Paul remind you of what's true. Verse four, you do not have authority over your own body. Your spouse does. And if they're asking you to go to the doctor or to speak with a pastor, scripture's clear. You don't have the right to take the request under advisement or treat what's urgent like it's optional. Here's the good news. 
you've come to a community that's not going to look down on you. And if we did, it'd be a sin, and God would hold us accountable for it. In these verses, Paul's leaving you no out if you're hiding your need for help. But equally, in Galatians 6, Paul leaves us no out as those called to walk alongside. Notice, brothers, if anybody's caught in any transgression, big or small, you who are spiritual, if you really are, should restore him, notice, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Don't get cocky. You're no better than the person who just got vulnerable with you. Here's God's design. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anybody thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. That's the kind of community into which you've come and to which you can entrust the things that you've hidden and are most embarrassed about. We all know how this goes. When we feel embarrassed or ashamed, it's really hard, seemingly impossible to ask for help. It's a little bit like saying to your friend, hey, I appreciate your offer to come help clean my house. I know I've been talking for a long time about how overwhelmed I am by the mess and Part of me would really love your help, but another part of me is ashamed for you to see the state of this house. So after wrestling back and forth with your offer all week, I've decided I prefer the pain of a messy house over the pain of you seeing my mess, so I'm politely declining your offer, right? We do this in a thousand ways. Now, on the other hand, it's important for me to say, neither are you to demand or coerce marital intimacy from your spouse, especially if you're physically stronger than your spouse. Yes, marital assault is possible. Just because a man's legally married, it doesn't make it legal or holy for him to take his wife by force. Marriage is not a kind of cover-up or get-out-of-jail-free card for sin or sexual violence of any kind. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, Peter drills into this, and he writes to husbands in a broader Greco-Roman culture that openly granted men the right to assault and mistreat their wives physically. And he says really clearly and really counterculturally, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the physically weaker vessel. They're heirs with you of the grace of life. And if you don't do this, God's not gonna listen to your prayers. So, married men of Frontline, live with your wives in an understanding way. If they're sick or otherwise indisposed, it's not their divinely ordained job to suppress all their basic instincts in order to please you. Self-control is not just a virtue for single men, it's for married men too. Now, on the other hand, a wise and a gracious wife can be welcoming even as she politely declines her husband's advances. It stings less when a wife says, I'm sorry, honey, not tonight. I'm exhausted. But how about tomorrow morning? Or maybe we can make a special plan for tomorrow night. Or, oh, I'm still too sick right now, but hopefully I'll be feeling better in a couple days. I can't wait to reconnect with you as soon as possible. And there are even other times when either of you might need to recognize the joyful obligation of remaining open to your spouse, even if it means making an effort to shift emotions or expectations or posturing yourself more towards a yes than a no. 
But the sad truth is that out of a misguided attempt to honor and reflect Paul's words in this passage through church history, some people have mishandled their Bibles and have wrongly taught the husband's privilege and the wife's obligation out of this text. But you don't need a college degree to see that Paul is calling both men and women to profoundly unselfish, joyful, and generous mutuality. And he goes on to encourage those of us who are married not to deprive each other for long. Why? Verse 5, so that Satan may not tempt us because of our lack of self-control. Some of you are old enough to remember the slogan, anti-war slogan of the 60s, make love, not war. Well, if Paul was making a slogan, it would be make love to make war. Paul's saying, you push the enemy away precisely by pursuing your spouse. You push the enemy away precisely by pursuing your spouse. And I have to stop and say in passing that Some of you here in the room are already walking the long road of repairing a marital breach. If that's you, we want you to hold your head up. You're not second-class citizens in this church. We want to encourage you to keep fighting to rebuild what's been torn down, to not give up. I promise you, we're honored to stand with you for as long as it takes. So what's the connection between marriage and making war? Well, Paul's trying to get him to see, and I hope you can see, that married sex is made for spiritual warfare. You didn't know you were going to come to church today and hear that sex is for spiritual warfare, but that's what Paul is saying. He goes, don't you see, Corinthians? Married sex is made for both satisfied mutuality and spiritual warfare. And so that means, if that's true, and if you agree with me, we all need to see marriage as a means of grace. Marriage is a means of grace. And right as they're just starting to wrap their head around that reality, Paul instantly pivots and he says, and I also want you to see that singleness is a means of grace as well. Singleness is a means of grace as well. And we all need to see it that way, regardless of our station. We're going to see that Paul's going to give us two reasons why. One, Because single chastity is made for supreme humanity. And two, because single chastity is made for strategic impact. Look at that first argument that Paul advances. Verses six and seven, Paul says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I actually wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another Single chastity is made for supreme humanity. In case his readers are mistakenly now going to assume that marriage is somehow the pinnacle of human flourishing, Paul wants to stop and point out the unique benefits of his own status as a single man. He says, verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. Now, why would he say that? If he's working so hard to protect them from thinking that marriage is superior, now it sounds like he's trying to say that singleness is superior. But he's not. He's simply saying singleness is simpler. There's a right and good complexity to marriage and child rearing that limits the amount of attention and energy that can be directed outward. 
And sadly, in our culture, we mostly talk about singleness in the negative. Singleness is merely the absence of marriage and family. But that's not how Jesus saw it. That's not how Paul saw it. It's not how the rest of the Christian scriptures treat singleness. But if you decide to follow Jesus and embrace the celibacy and chastity required to do so in your singleness, you're going to suddenly realize, if you haven't already, that you're picking up words that to most people sound like they were lifted from an episode of Downton Abbey. Celibacy. Chastity. I mean, these are some archaic words, right, for a, a seemingly archaic cultural way of life. Most people you're friends with today, maybe some of you in this very room, believe that without sex, you can't really experience what it means to be truly human. Sam Albury, writing as a single man, says, according to this thinking, our sense of personhood is directly attached to our sex life. To ignore this side of us, to deliberately not express and fulfill it, is to actually do harm to ourselves. It's a fundamental aspect of our humanity, most people believe, and repressing it's not healthy. Those who are long-term single are not just quaint and old-fashioned. We might actually be deluded. But Jesus bluntly rejects the subhuman view of singleness and chastity. He takes it head on. Notice what he says in Matthew 19. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the disciples predictably say to him, so if the burn my breakfast clause is off the table, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Doesn't sound like there's a lot of outs there, Jesus. And Jesus says, you're right. Not everybody can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Jesus doesn't try to soften marriage. Most people in our culture think of marriage as the landing spot. And Jesus is like, it's probably a little more like climbing a mountain. You might not be up for it. He says, but alternately, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, notice, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this, receive this. Eunuchs were celibate men in Jesus' day, necessarily, particularly those who'd been physically emasculated. And Jesus is reminding them, hey, some are eunuchs involuntarily. They were born that way or made that way by others. But there's another category of eunuch, Jesus says, some who are willing to forego marriage by choice for the sake of the kingdom of God. So Sam Albury concludes in his fantastic little book, Seven Myths About Singleness, I recommend it to you. We need to remember that Jesus made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus willingly became fully human for us. You know what that means? That means that he has done everything you've done, and it was actually harder, not easier, because he never gave in to temptation. Let's throw away these false ideas of his humanity. Jesus had no secret easy button. He fully depended on the power of the Spirit, his humanity was real, not fake. He lived the single life hard. He was a sexual human being, as we all are. He willingly became male 
but he lived a celibate lifestyle. He never married. He never entered a romantic relationship. He never had sex. Jesus wasn't calling others to a standard he wasn't willing to embrace himself. Jesus isn't talking from the other side of the street. He wasn't calling singles to sexual abstinence while knowing nothing of it himself. He lived this very teaching, but there's more than even that. Jesus is not just an example of a non-hypocritical teacher. He's the example of the perfect man. He's the humanity we're all called to be, but which none of us are. He's the most complete, most fully human person who ever lived. So you know what that means? His not being married is not incidental. It shows us that none of these things, marriage or romantic fulfillment or sexual experience, is intrinsic to being a full human being. The culture thinks they've got this right, but the moment we say otherwise, the moment we claim a life of celibacy to be dehumanizing, we're implying that Jesus himself is only subhuman. Are you prepared to say that? Paul says, you need to see singleness as a means of grace because single chastity is made for supreme humanity. But single chastity is also made for strategic impact. The point he's trying to make in verse seven is much smaller than most people assume. Marriage and singleness both carry unique benefits and unique challenges. He's not saying one's more spiritual than the other. He's not even saying one's easier than the other. They're both hard in different ways. He's simply pointing out the contrast between complexity and simplicity. Married life's more complicated, singleness more straightforward, in the words of one author. I recently read a biography of John Stott in preparation for the sermon, one of the most famous single Christian leaders of the last 100 years, entitled Godly Ambition. This was a man, not who couldn't get a date, but who was single for the sake of the kingdom of God. John Stott was a British Christian leader who became one of the most influential figures in Bible-believing Christianity during the second half of the 20th century. And people would frequently joke that if Protestants had a pope, it would be Stott. (laughs) And he helped to shape this global Christian movement that was growing rapidly during his career and ministry. He preached to thousands of people on six continents. Millions of people bought his books and listened to his sermons until by 2005, time actually included him in its annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Some weird fundamentalist Christian single dude. He died in 2011 and Stott was this man of great kingdom ambition, who used the simplicity of his singleness to allow him to serve the global church in unique ways. He lived really frugally. He didn't have a lot of nice stuff. He traveled constantly. He gave away massive amounts of money from the sale of his books to support pastors in the majority world, and he lived a life of faithful chastity. I think of John Stott. I think also of Sam Albury himself, I've been quoting a man, a brilliant writer and thinker, who's a faithful, single, same-sex attracted, British Anglican pastor who's prayerfully and faithfully awaiting the full renewal of his gendered identity in either this life or the next, and he's written tons of timely, compelling books on a Christian sexual vision in a post 
Christian world. A man who helped me greatly in the preparation for this very message from across an ocean through the simplicity of a singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. Or I think of Nancy Lee Moss. Some of you know her. She spent the majority of her life writing, teaching, and discipling generations of women as a single woman, only to be totally surprised by a marriage proposal from a godly widower when she was 56. That's her in her wedding dress. Now her new books carry the byline, Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, taking the name of her husband, Robert. Single chastity, Paul's saying, it's for supreme humanity, but it's also for strategic impact. Now stay with me, we're almost done. Why does the word unmarried pop up in the middle of Paul's words to widows here in verse eight? Notice what he says there. He's talked to married people. Now he's talking to a particular subset of single people, the formerly married, but he says, Verse eight, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, which is completely confusing because he sets aside a whole section of chapter seven, as we'll see, to address the not yet ever married. So why does he talk to the unmarried and widows? Well, the short answer is Paul's using a word translated here rightly as unmarried to refer to widowers, men whose wives have died. In that day and time, being widowed created way more problems for a woman than for a man, So the word for a male widow or widower was used much less often. It was common to use the word rightly translated here as unmarried instead, and his readers wouldn't know what he meant. Hey, men and women who've lost a spouse, I'm talking to you. And I want you to see that there could be a unique advantage and a strategic kingdom position and a source of joy and meaning if you were to remain single as I am, which tells us something else that you may not know. And it's the only place in scripture that we get a peek behind the veil. He's encouraging these widows and widowers to see the benefit of verse eight, remaining single as I am. Did Paul's wife die? Did she abandon him dramatically when he converted to the faith he once persecuted? We don't know. He doesn't bother to tell them because they probably knew. But it's highly likely that Paul was once married, not only because of what he says here and putting himself in the same category as the widows and widowers, but because in that day and age, marriage would have been customary to the point almost of a requirement for a Jewish man who was devoted to studying Torah at the highest levels as Paul once did. So Paul says, let me correct you gently, Corinthians. Marriage and sex are good They're worth fighting for, but they're not the ultimate goal because God's gonna be coming back soon. Marriage and sex are worthy, but they're temporary. Don't forget it. However, widows and widowers, verse nine, if you cannot exercise self-control, it might be wise for you to consider marriage. One scholar points out that when he says this to them in verse nine, he's not thinking primarily about sin. He's simply saying, The one indication you should get married is if you have strong sexual desires. Simply put, if you have the opportunity for marriage and sexual desires are strong, marriage might be the best option and you shouldn't try to be something you're not. In conclusion, it's important that we don't misunderstand Paul. Marriage isn't a concession for the weak or the less spiritual. Singleness is neither spiritually superior nor some kind of failure to achieve full humanity. We'll see later in this chapter, verse 20, Paul's gonna write, hey, everybody stay calm. 
you baby Christians. Each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. Don't panic. Cultivate contentment. Don't be ruled by your emotions. Don't let some weird view of God or marriage or singleness or sex tempt you to make major life decisions in a reactionary way. Sure, God may see fit to change your current state, but you don't need to fix your current state. And if you can't see both marriage and singleness as gift, you'll inevitably slide into self-salvation and you'll be tempted to grab the wheel from the passenger seat. Bad theology makes for bad decisions. Seeing God wrong leads to seeing life wrong. But married, single, or widowed, God gives grace. Of course, of course, not all who are single want to stay that way. And the invitation to wait patiently doesn't always feel like a gift. But there's plenty for you to steward today, even in the midst of your uncertainty, in the midst of your grief or your loss or your waiting, because you've come to a father who knows what you need even before you ask him. So Paul's saying, stay the course. You can trust him.